For me, fashion is a verb. So it's too fashion. You're listening to Wardrobe Crisis with Claire Press. Join me every week as we look at sustainability, ethics, and the business and madness of fashion. Hello, everyone. This is the end of Series 4. Have you enjoyed it? I've really enjoyed making these episodes for you. Some of the standouts for me have to be the interview with Giles Dooley, the anti-war photographer. That was episode 122. I think my interview with Tarana Burke is possibly my favourite. If you haven't listened to that, it's a really important one. It's episode 109. And the most downloaded, the most popular, has actually been the story of garment workers and COVID-19, which is great news that so many people really care about the people making our clothes. If you've missed that, it's episode 115. Our guest today is another extraordinary individual. Her name is Kia Brown, and she's the American writer behind the hashtag Disabled and Cute. I came across Kia's work via a New York Times article. It's called Disabled People Love Clothes Too, and we'll pop a link here in the description. I just knew after reading that I had to persuade Kia onto the podcast. This is an under-discussed subject, and it's absolutely ridiculous. We need to be talking about this stuff if we're going to be serious about diversity and inclusion. Then, in September, Kia was part of New York Fashion Week. She was modelling in the Runway of Dreams virtual fashion show, wearing Tommy Hilfiger Adaptive. So this is really nice timing. Runway of Dreams was founded by Mindy Shire, a fashion designer whose son has muscular dystrophy. And she talks about how she couldn't find jeans for him to wear to school so he could be like his mates. Now, their mission statement is to celebrate people's differences, break down stereotypes and empower people with disabilities with confidence, independence and style. But... I reckon it's also about challenging the fashion industry to step up, to really just do more when it comes to adaptive and functional fashion. Those guys have been partnering with Tommy since 2016 and Tommy Hilfiger Adaptive is still one of the only mainstream designer brands to cater to this significant market. So we talk about that. Now, Kia wants more action. As she says to fashion, either you get on the train while it's stopped or you watch it pass by. The time has really come. I mean, hello. This is an enlightening and also a bright interview. Kia is just fantastic. I love her. You can follow her and you must on Instagram. She's at Kia, K-E-A-H underscore Maria, M-A-R-I-A. And you can find me, as usual, on Instagram and Twitter. I'm at Mrs Press. We'd love to hear what you make of all this. One of the bits that really resonated with me, actually, is when Kia talks about finding pockets of joy. So, yes, do get in touch and let us know what you make of this interview. And remember, you can read our magazine at www.thewardrobecrisis.com. You can also sign up for our bi-weekly newsletters there, too. Don't be a stranger. (laughs) Not that you're going to have much chance to. We'll be back with Series 5 before you know it. But now, let's hear from Kia. Welcome, Kia. I'm so happy that we're recording this podcast. Thank you for having me. Oh, I'm delighted. And I was just saying that when I approached you, I hadn't realised that you were about to make your New York Fashion Week debut. But the timing is absolutely lovely because this week you did that. Tell us about that. Wild. It's just a a wild thing. So I met Mindy, who was the founder of Runway of Dreams, when I did a panel last year for CFDA on accessible clothing and like which brands are doing the work and what needs to be done. It was me as the moderator, Jillian Mercado, Lucy Jones, who is the creator of Fofora, and then Tommy Hilfiger and their adaptive line. And so, and then Mindy. And so Mindy and I sort of hit it off and we stayed in touch and we had set up a call to catch up with each other just to, you know, see how the other person was doing, like, what they were doing. You know, I'm a journalist. So I was like, if you're doing anything great, let me know. And so she was talking to me about the fashion show. And I was like, oh, cool. I would love to write about it. And she was like, how about you be in it? And I was like, oh, awesome. Yeah, it was just really like organic. And she wanted me to be in the show. And I was like, are you sure? Like, I'm not a model. And she was like, yeah, you are. (laughs) And I want you to be a part of it. You say you're not a model, but you love fashion. And so why not? Right. I, I guess I just never thought that fashion doesn't really love disabled people back quite yet. So I thought it was always going to be this thing that I loved, but was never going to have any real access to it in that way. So for me, it was really a surprise that Mindy wanted me to, to model because I always 
envied models. I never thought that I could be one. And so it really was sort of this magical thing that came together where Mindy was like, I want you to be a part of the show. I think that you would be great. And so I was a part of the show. And then it was even cooler because it was a part like New York Fashion Week. Like I got to be a part of that and say like I modeled during New York Fashion Week. And it was just like a dream come true, but a sort of dream that you never thought would actually come true. It's like one of those far off dreams that you like have, but you don't really (laughs) acknowledge. So there was no conventional runway. Obviously, COVID restrictions mean that everything is digital. So you all walked in your own spaces. And then where were you? And tell us what you wore. There is a park close to my house. And so we went and set up there and I walked down a really long roadway. And I wore Tommy Hilfiger. So I wore Tommy Hilfiger shirt and jeans. And then I wore Calvin Klein's shoes. And I felt so beautiful. (laughs) And you looked so beautiful. I've just got to catch myself. I said, everybody walked where they were. And as I said it, I thought, well, everybody didn't walk. And how we presume and how our language is set up that out of habit and by mistake, we use this language Mm -hmm. which excludes. And I didn't do that on purpose, but I I want to talk about that because that's what I did. So this event, which is called Runway for Dreams, showcases adaptive fashion and Tommy Hilfiger adaptive is one of the sponsors but talk to us a little bit about what that means and about um and we'll come back on to your style but just as I picked myself up talk to us about what that can mean and what adaptive clothing does and what sorts of needs it caters to and why in general what adaptive clothing does that regular clothing does not is that it allows room for people who have like colostomy bags. It allows places where there's no buttons or zippers, which I personally love because I struggle with both buttons and some zippers. And it's really just what I think accessible fashion really is, is the opportunity for every person who has to wear clothes to feel good and look good while they're doing it. So it's a lot of like, you know, extra openings, no buttons, no zippers, clothes that fit over leg braces or arm braces. You know, some people only need one sleeve on their shirts. Some people only need one leg or one what have you. And so a lot of accessible clothing caters to specific disabilities that people within the community have while also being able to have it be broad enough to wear multiple people, no matter your disability, can mm-hmm. also wear the clothes. There was a, a rock star guy that was part of the presentation at New York Fashion Week, and he has one arm, and he was talking about how fantastic it was to have this T-shirt which closed with magnets so he could put it on himself. Yeah, and I think that a lot of accessible clothing is so much about independence and freedom and being able to do these things for ourselves if we so choose. You know, I think that there's something so beautiful about understanding that there's nothing wrong with needing help and getting help, but also there's something so wonderful about having clothes that we don't have to ask for help to put on. And I think that a lot of times what happens with accessible clothing is that it often isn't also fashionable. And it's like disabled people care about fashion too. We don't want to just look like we're wearing hospital gowns all the time. We want to have something that looks fun and sexy and flirty and what have you. And I think that um, what I like the most about what I wore with Tom Hilfiger and their adaptive line in general is that I felt good in it. It wasn't just that it was accessible, but I felt good while I was wearing it. Okay, I wanted to start by asking you about your style. I know that you're a fashion fan. Yes. Why don't you just tell us? I'm always interested to know what people's favorite ice clothing is in their wardrobe or just an outfit that makes your heart dance. Ooh, I have a few. So I'm a person who loves a good jean. I love a good jean, like, and a cute shirt. A jean queen. I love American Eagles jeans, actually. But um, I also really like dresses. But I think that my style is is very much like I want to be comfortable, but I like sort of feminine type things. You know, I love a floral. <laughs> I love a floral. Um, I've seen you on Instagram in a floral. 
Yeah, floral. I like a lot of, I like color as well. I'm not wearing any right now, which is a choice, but, <laughs> but normally I like, you know, a lot of color. I like things to be like whimsical and, and, um, different. And also things that, you know, you might see in your standard, like department store. Like I like the mix of both. I want to just wear whatever makes me feel like I am my prettiest self, my cutest self, my sexiest self, my whatever self. I just think that whatever it is, whether it's brand name or not, as long as I feel like I can put my best foot forward mm. and like can get at least one compliment, I'm good to go. <laughs> Clothes is so much about confidence, aren't they? I was talking about this with someone the other day that when you feel you're wearing something that, I don't know, represents you or that you're comfortable in, or perhaps all three, really, when you see it, it makes you smile. You actually mm. face the world in a different way, I think. I think confidence yeah. is deeply tied into the tools that we have, I guess, in order to represent ourselves. I'm not saying that's the only thing. Obviously, having inner confidence is a thing. But I do think that clothes can be a powerful tool. What do you reckon? I agree. I think that when I put on something that I know I feel good in, I can literally face the world and do anything. I think that the right outfit can really turn around your day. You know, you can wake up being like, oh, I have so much work to do. If you put on a cute dress or like some jeans and a cute shirt, even a red lip for me, it just transforms my mood. And I think for a lot of my life, like I didn't know how to face the world without some sort of like inherent insecurity about my body. So when I finally started to do the work of, you know, choosing to love myself even on days when I was just like, ugh, I don't want to, I don't want to do it today. I would put on something that I love, and I still do that now. Put on something that makes me feel, you know, cute and feminine and worthy, not even of somebody else's attention, but just my own. Mm. And it's just that much easier to, you know, exist in the world and go out in public and handle what life throws at you, especially as a disabled person, because there are definitely some curveballs. So it helps to really feel good in what I'm wearing. Can I ask you what the curveballs are for you? So what do you need in clothing? And tell us about your condition. So I have cerebral palsy. My form means that when I walk, I walk with a limp. And I'm a full-time walker, so you will always see the limp. And it just means that, like, on my right side, I have a slower reaction time. It takes me, you know, longer to do things on my right side, like I don't have the same sort of motor skill set. I don't have the same sort of movement either. So like I can do this very easily with my left hand, but it takes longer with the right and like, you know, stuff like that. So it's really just been like me having to adjust, I guess, to, you know, taking longer to put clothes on, take them off, taking longer to do things than someone who is non-disabled might. And I read, we'll talk about your book shortly, but I was just thinking about reading in your book, but also you talk about being in a lot of pain. You talk about growing up and having to take lots of rests and breaks and how annoying that is, you know, when your friends seem to be moving faster than you, I guess. But it also comes with pain and discomfort, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, even now, I think what's so interesting is that, well, like, I can't walk long distances without taking breaks. Like, I am the queen of a break. Like I have a lot of like, you know, like hip pain, leg pain, you know, standard stuff. But I think it's so interesting to me how we package the idea of rest or like Ugh. package the idea of grinding in our larger global culture because we always say, you know, got to get up, got to keep going, got to push through it. But sometimes pushing through it means that you're doing more harm to your body than good. So for me, it's imperative to take rests and even like sometimes preemptive rests to avoid that pain in the first place. Kia, there was something else in your book and I'm skipping because I really want to unpack lots of things that you have discussed and written about so beautifully in your fantastic book, The Pretty One. But just on this, there's another thing that really stuck out to me. You talked about how in our culture, the idea of taking rest or sitting down in particular, and you've written this wonderful essay about the chair and your kind of love affair with the chair, but you talk about how the idea of sitting down is lazy or deemed lazy sometimes. And this idea of, oh, 
good. I'll get on with it. And you just touched on it there. Talk us through that. I mean, it's just there's so much in mainstream culture that casually dismisses so much of the other, if you like, isn't there? It's just so, I found it really upsetting. Just this seemingly simple thing. The chair. I mean, the fact that you go, why are you so lazy or whatever it is? You know, why, why are you lying around or sitting around? Right. And it's just like this idea that, you know, I think about this like rise and grind culture and how it's like if we're not up and going, going, going and doing, 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 then we're not being valuable members of society. But we don't talk about the effects of that and how when you push your body well beyond its limits, it's not like you're doing something amazing what you're doing is hurting your body for later on down the road and i think that we live in a culture and this is in part because of capitalism but we live in a culture that says if you're not up and going constantly you're not being a valued member of society you're not doing what we need you to do to keep our economy or what have you afloat and my whole thing is that people treat rest like it's a punishment and i think if we started treating rest like a gift. And if we stopped pretending that people who don't need rest, even though I firmly believe that everybody, no matter your body, needs rest, are somehow better than people who do need rest, then we'd be in a much better place. Because I think where we are currently, even, you know, especially with corona, I think that the forced rest has allowed people to re-examine the ways in which they've perpetuated the idea that if they're not constantly moving or constantly going, or if somebody else is not constantly moving or constantly going, they're doing something wrong. Kia, can I tell you a story about the forced pause, which has absolutely nothing to do with this conversation, but I think you'll find it interesting. Please do. (laughs) There was a story in The Guardian that I read yesterday that orca whales in the Gibraltar Strait have been carrying on in a very strange way. So orca whales that normally are friendly to boats and humans have Mm -hmm. suddenly been getting together and harassing boats. And like, imagine the size of an orca whale, crazy. So they're all coming up to the boats and then basically kind of shaking them and being really intimidating. And scientists are considering that maybe they're doing this because during the coronavirus pause, when there was no traffic, they had finally a taste for the first time in generations of what it was like to be quiet and not to have constant traffic and people in their way and they had time to rest and now that everything's turned back on again they're really really pissed off and rightfully so I think that like it's wild to me that there's really no plan in place and we're just still turning everything back on and being like it's time to get out and do work and be active again and I think that it's really still falling into those harmful stereotypes of like you must work and you must do and you must be and exist because that's what a member of society does and that's what you have to do as a person. And it's just like so bad because this is why people burn out and they, you know, lose the pull for anything they love because people were burning out well before Corona and they'll burn out after it under the idea that now that everything's back to normal, we must then do all the things we were doing before and not take breaks and not realize that the people we're working for and the people that we have working for us need those breaks and need that rest and need the ability to simply just be without having to be on all the time. Mm -hmm. Let's talk more about your work. I first came across it in a story in the New York Times. It was in June and it was titled disabled people love clothes too. And you talked about how slow fashion's been to embrace inclusive, adaptive collections. Mm-hmm. You wrote, and I actually wrote down this quote, because I just, there's so much of your work that I underlined, Kia. So good. You wrote, Three decades after the passage of the landmark Americans with Disabilities Act, disabled people want to be able to have freedom of self-expression through fashion rather than accepting scraps from an industry that has been very slow to embrace our needs. Can we unpack that a little bit? Yeah. I mean, it's a weird thing to, like I said earlier, love something that's not loving you back. Everybody needs clothes. You know, the market is there. The want is there, but it's just that people are so afraid, I think, 
of even trying and messing up that they're not trying at all. And so what I said in the article, I'll say it here, is that I was talking about the same four or five brands in another article for Glamour Magazine two years ago. Mm -hmm. You know, I think what I learned at the fashion show was that Kohl's and um, a shoe company, I'm blanking, have accessible clothing lines, but I didn't know about it at the time. Of the there New was York Zalando. Time. What else? I think maybe Target. Was, I can't remember. Uh, yeah, there was Zappos, Target, Tommy, and then there was Kohl's. Right, but we're not talking here about Gucci and Net-A-Porter having yeah. brands that are carrying adaptive lines. It's not there, is it? Right, it's not there at all. And so, or fast fashion either. I mean, I'm no fan of fast fashion because I'm a sustainability warrior. But you know, you don't walk into H and M or Zara and find adaptive lines, right? Right. And it's wild to me because a lot of these clothing brands that I love, they're quicker to design lines for dogs than they are oh, people. And it's like I was when I was doing research for the article, I was looking and I'm like, it's wild to me that dogs have more clothing line options than disabled people do. And that is this. That's a, another thing that is inherently terrible because it's saying to a complete customer base who has to buy clothes anyway and alter them that we don't matter enough for you to try, but dogs matter enough. So we're going to do that because that's somehow easier. And I think that what we have to realize is that fashion brands in particular need to remember that disabled people need clothes too. And we're tired of having to buy something two and three times because we have to get it altered. We have to do X, Y, and Z thing after we buy it just so that it fits our bodies. And I think if you can't think about people as people, at least think about money as your bottom line. There's mm -hmm. so much untapped monetary value in designing for disabled people because we need clothes and we want clothes that make us feel good. And we don't want to have to beg the industry to care about us. At least care about your wallet then. Because at this point, I'm frustrated that we're in 2020. And we keep talking about all these strides everyone's making. But when it comes to disability, those same strides aren't being made. And I, I want to know why it is that someone like me, a disabled Black woman, can love fashion so much and can see the value and can critique the thing that I think is wonderful because it can be better, is not also saying, hey, let me jump on the same train that Zappos is on, that Tommy Hilfiger, when they started it with Runway of Dreams for Kids in 2017, is on. Let me, you know, see what Coles is talking about when they make accessible clothing. Like, there's this thing that we're not doing that they are. And they mm. see the impact of it and how successful it's been. Why, why can't I be like, you know what? I would really love a Gucci dress or I would really love some Balenciaga pants, something like, you know, why can't I have that option too? Or like, why can't I just have the option to have more options? You know? <laughs> like I want more than what I'm being given. One of your lines that I also underline, because this whole podcast is just about me underlining your work. That's because <laughs> Kia is a writer. So when I interview writers, which is rare, I get very excited and I just love your use of language. I think you've got a wonderful turn of phrase. You're really a very beautiful explainer of difficult cultural context because it's so personal and you just sparkle. You're brilliant. Anyway, you wrote, Thank you. <laughs> fewer options mean more barriers. I mean, that's exactly what you're talking about, right? I started by saying brands like Gucci don't have adaptive lines. And then you picked up that example and said, what if I want a Gucci dress? And I thought Sinead Burke has been on this podcast and mm. she has had a custom made Gucci dress. She wore it to Davos. It was blue silk and incredible. Now, Sinead Burke is, I think she's three foot five. That's how tall she is. And she has a condition called achondroplasia which is a disorder of bone growth, right? So she was talking about how before she became famous and was able to call up Alessandra McKelly and say, make me a frock, she was used to, in her younger days, buying children's clothes because they were the ones that suited her height. And she's like, this is absolutely absurd and depressing. I don't want to have yeah. to make stuff and I don't want to have to be you know, sent to the children's department where styling is basically targeted towards you being 10 years old. But these right. barriers are there, aren't they? I mean... Absolutely. I mean, we... 
for so many of us. And I feel like I have privilege in that I can make do with things more than a lot of disabled people, but we can't just walk into every single store and go into a change room, put something on and say, yep, this is it. I'm just going to wear this. Don't have to do anything else to it. A lot of us have to do something else to it. And that's one barrier. The other barrier is that it's expensive. When you have to buy something and then alter it, that's expensive. Like that costs money. So then you have to budget. And for those of us who just want to buy something once, like where is the harm in that? And I think, um, yeah, I, first of all, I love Sinead. Amazing, brilliant human. And I think that like, it's got to be very hard for her in particular because it's like she's that example that people use where they're like, well, we do this for her. And I think what I always say when people are like, oh, well, we did this thing for you. I always say, okay, but that's great. But also what about everybody else? Because I'm not just trying to be the only one in the room. I want to be surrounded by people with disabilities, in cute clothes, at a party, hanging out in all these spaces. I wanna and I wanna be loved and seen, not despite anything. You know, I don't wanna feel like I'm well, we got one in the room, so that's all we needed mm-hmm. to do. Like it shouldn't be that it's just one of us or just two of us. Like I don't wanna be a token. I wanna be somebody that is respected and cared for in the way that non-disabled people get to be specifically in fashion. I think that, you know, fashion is so built on the idea of like exclusivity, but there's so much beauty in making sure that you design for all people because more people are going to have your clothes. And that, that means more access to other people who may not know it at all. And so for me, I'm obsessed with like Christian Siriano and I'm obsessed with like Carolina Herrera and just Diane von Furstenberg and Gucci, obviously, and like all of these brands that I've loved forever. Just, but the ability to be able to wear their clothes would be a dream come true. And it's just like if designers remember that they came into fashion with stories of their own, trying to create things that made them feel seen and heard and understood, then it wouldn't be so hard to make that leap to remember that disabled people also want to be seen, understood, respected, and heard. And we want to share parts of ourselves through clothes because that's the magic of clothes is that you get to share another extension of your personality, another extension of who you want to be. You know, fashion has so many opportunities, but they need to also have those opportunities for disabled people. You talked about being seen. Let's talk about being cute. <laughs> Tell us the story of Disabled and Cute, the hashtag. Yeah. Okay. So I created Disabled and Cute in 2017, which feels like eons ago. After a really long struggle with my body and sort of like being uncomfortable because, you know, disabled bodies are different. And I didn't know how to compartmentalize that when I was like in high school and struggling because nobody wanted to go to prom with me or when I was in college and not going on dates like my friends. And so by the time 2017 rolled around, I was feeling really good in my body and I was doing really well in my career. And so I posted four selfies of myself and I was like, hey, friends, surprise, I'm disabled and cute, not either or, both at the same time. And then I left Twitter Later that week, we went viral, and the next week, it went sort of global. And um, yeah, I think that's the story of the hashtag, where it was just me celebrating finally feeling good turned into a place for other disabled people to do the same. And I feel very lucky because people are still using it today. And I think that that just goes to show that sometimes we need permission to love ourselves. And I was happy that the hashtag gave people that. Let's talk about your book here. I keep mentioning it. We'll share a link. It's called The Pretty One. I read the ebook. Everyone can read it right now. Just get hold mm-hmm. of it. You also have an audio book. I do. So you can I listen to. <laughs> oh, you read it yourself, isn't it? Yeah, I read it myself. I was like, oh, this will be fun. How long did it take you? It took me three days. I read from like 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Oh, wow. Every day for three days. We took like lunch breaks and stuff, but you literally build up a lot of um, 
like you burp a lot, which I didn't know about before <laughs> doing it. They're like, she literally told me the producer was like, you're going to burp a lot and I need you to not be embarrassed about it and not like, you know, apologize. We'll edit the burps out. It's fine. And so like, wow, just because you're talking so much. Yep. And it just like pushes air out. It's so funny. But yeah, that process was was wild. But I felt like I had to read it. Like I felt like that book was a book where nobody else could do it the justice. I think mm. it deserved <laughs> because it's my personal story. So for I mean, I was like, I feel like when I publish, you know, a novel, somebody else can read it. But for that, I wanted I wanted to for sure. Let's talk about the intro. You write about some of the things that you love, that make you you, that bring you joy. They're things like eating pizza, dancing in cars, lipstick. And you talk about how you enjoy these things in your body, just as anyone else might, but not in spite of anything. And not because you are, and these are your italics, brave or bold. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about that. This idea that is so condescending, isn't it? Is that how people carry on? Yeah, it's so condescending. It's like either we disgust you or we are, you know, some sort of like form of inspiration porn is what we call it, where it's like you disable people to make yourself feel better about whatever is going on in your lives. And so for me, it was imperative to be like, no, I'm doing all these things in my disabled body, not because I'm doing something despite it. If I'm doing despite anything, it's just despite your behavior toward my body mm-hmm. and behavior toward the way that I navigate the world. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I love all those things and I think that I would love them regardless. And that was my point where it's like I don't need to think about what my life would be like if I wasn't disabled because I don't I, have, I no longer care about being disabled as a bad thing. You know, like it matters to me, obviously, but I think what I wanted to show with that line or that section of the book is that these identifiers matter, but I'm not doing anything despite them. I'm doing everything in tandem with them. I also love this quote. And actually, I did say, I can't remember whether this came from your book or whether it was from one of your articles, but you wrote, my disability is not a thing to see past, but instead a thing to acknowledge and accept before able-bodied people and myself continue existing at the same time in this world. This whole idea of separation and of somehow, you mentioned tokenism before, Mm -hmm. but the way that mainstream culture keeps separate anything that doesn't sort of conform. I think it's such a... It's a terrible thing. I wonder why we don't examine it more as a society and and how it is that we let this kind of cliched stereotyping continue. What do you, you've written a lot and thought about that a lot, obviously. And mm-hmm. You even write in the book about the contempt that some people have for your body. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's strange. I think particularly because like in the before times when I was traveling a lot, you know, for speaking events or what have you, I would do like the wheelchair gate to gate because, again, I can't walk long distances. And my body, I tried it and my body was screaming. So I signed up for the assistance from that point on as I got busier. And people scoff. They used to scoff when they'd see me get up out of the wheelchair, like from the you know, when you go into the airplane, you have to walk down or whatever. I would get out at the front of the airplane and walk to my seat and they would just scoff. Oh, you don't need it then. Oh, yeah, God. Like, it's just this idea that's like either we're faking disability. It's not as bad as we're making it out to be. And if it is considered legitimized, they think only of what we may have lost because of it. And um, I think the people who... It's like either they don't like disabled bodies because disabled bodies disgust them or make them uncomfortable or make them fear their own sort of eventual disability in some way. And I think that that's really part of popular culture's problem because of the way we talk about disability and showcase disability in film and TV, which I also love and often critique. But you talk about always that white man in the wheelchair, this is white guy who's really kind of cranky. And Mm -hmm. you have to feel sorry for him and he's in a wheelchair. That's it. Your token disabled person. That's it. And he's always after some girl who's non-disabled and doesn't see him that way. And he's so desperate to be loved by her. And if he's loved by her, he still doesn't feel like he's worthy. And so 
he ends up dead before the movie is over. Like, that's just always how it is, except for, I think, I've seen one movie where he doesn't die, that he makes it to the end and, like, is alive before the credits roll. And I think that that's a problem because, one, it's harmful and, like, it takes away the idea or the fact, rather, that disabled people have joy in their lives. Like, we really do. I wouldn't be sitting here talking to you if I didn't have that. And then also, there are more than just white disabled people in the disability community, and there are more than just white disabled men in the disability community. But because we have these really bad scraps of really harmful movies, people only think it can happen to certain people. And they think that they know what it means or what it feels like to be disabled. And then even when they have those movies, they never cast actually disabled actors. So oh gosh, it's just quite the triple whammy <laughs> and just like having to do the work of counteracting that narrative, but also understanding that like some people are never going to get it. And that's, not something I can take on for the rest of my life. I just have to reach the people willing to be reached and call it a day. How do you think fashion in particular can do better? Oh, I think that it's about making sure they have more than one of us in their ad campaigns, for starters. There's always only one. Um, And I think that that's important. Absolutely make your clothes, I think, accessible. We're moving out of a place where coronavirus should have shown the need for that, you know? But if it hasn't, please make your clothes accessible. But I mean, even apart from the clothes, make your runway shows accessible. Have disabled people in your runway shows. Like, have us there, too. When you post about things, you know, like social media, like Instagram and Twitter and Facebook, put disabled people in those ads as well. Put us in your clothes. Tell us that we're worthy. Like, don't just tell us. Also, show us. You know, I think that for me... Fashion should be, you know, both sustainable as possible, but also I want fashion to be as inclusive as possible. And I want it to really examine why it is that we operate under the assumption that if you love fashion, you look a certain way, or if you love fashion, you only need a certain set of things. And we need to get rid of like just sample two sizes. Not everybody. Not everybody has bodies like that. And I think that while it does cater to the people who do, those of us outside of that, we love clothes too. They matter to us. People with big boobs and big butts or people with no butts and no boobs or whatever. We all have a love for fashion. And I think that if you can remember, specifically to fashion designers, if you can remember how much you love fashion and what got you into fashion and that desire to tell your own stories and make a change and make a difference, also remember that including disabled people in that want and that desire is still doing that thing where you're making that difference and you're changing the game for the better and you're making people feel like they matter when they wear your pieces. And that's the point, really. You want people to feel good, right? So. The only way you can do that is to be a part of the change that's going to happen whether you want it to or not. So either you get on the train while it's stopped or you just watch it pass you by. Do you think we're doing better? Because I feel like we're certainly having more conversations about representation, whether it's around size inclusivity or whether it's around, I don't know, how racist fashion is or how everyone on a runway is skinny and white or whatever it is. We're having these conversations, but do you think we're actually getting better and really making change or are we just making noise? I mean, I want to, I'm a recovering pessimist. So (laughs) I want to, I want desperately to see that we're making change, but it's not fast enough. And so I think that because it's taking so long, I can't really call it change. It's more just like a slog of things and people are doing the work and I don't, want to discount that but I do think that it needs to be moving faster than it actually is and so I don't want to praise something that isn't going at the rate that I think it should be because the problem with that specifically is that all the tools are there you know everything that people need is there they just have to do it and so when we have conversations like these I think it's great but there does definitely need to be more action behind it instead of you know like lip service things like people will post on Instagram 
black lives matter or what or this life matters or what have you and it's like that's great thank you a great first step but also what are you doing for step <laughs> two three four and five like what 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 comes after that how have you been doing with all of that? I mean, right now we're having this conversation in the middle of hopefully long-term constant discussion and change around Black Lives Matter and around systemic racism, but it does feel like there's a lot of trauma being unleashed right now. How are you doing? Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm doing as well as you can be. Like, I think that I'm I'm okay right now. Uh, I did go through a really rough period of just like not being able to do anything, not being able to like talk to people about it, just sort of like really struggling because it is traumatic. It's constant. And I think because not enough is being done and we're having to prove once again that Black Lives Matter, even though we've always known that they have, it's exhausting. Um, And I try every day to find pockets of joy. And that's really what I've just been doing is like, Anything that makes me happy, I feel like I deserve and that I will indulge in it because the alternative is just being exhausted and scared and tired and sad all the time. And that's just not healthy. I want to finish talking on joy because joy is a word that you love and you've written about and talked about joy. And even just saying it makes me smile. There's something so powerful in embracing that concept, unpacking it and centering it, if you like, like saying, as you just said, I'm going to focus on that. I'm going to look for it and celebrate Mm -hmm. it. And obviously we can't do that 24 hours a day. And I'm not suggesting people could lift depression just by thinking I'll be more joyful, but there is something I think very magical about, I think joy and gratitude. I've got a little book. I'll show it to you. (laughs) I've got this little yellow book and I write every day three things that make me grateful in this book. I love and that. That act sounds a bit silly, but actually it's fantastic. If you feel crap and then you force yourself to think of three things that were actually wonderful, even if one of those things is the sun came out, it forces you to kind of think differently, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, for me, like um, to get to the place of happiness that allowed disabled and cute to be born, I said four things that I liked about myself in the mirror every single day, day and night, different things, just so that I could keep going and literally retrain my brain to go from looking at myself and saying negative things or things that hurt me or things that I thought I was preparing myself for the world to say. I started saying four things that I liked and that propelled me forward every single day. It still does, you know, when I need the reminder that I'm worthy and beautiful in my body and whoever doesn't like it can suck it. And (laughs) what kind of things would you say like I would say I would be like oh you know today we love your eyes and your nose and your mouth and then you know your friends love you because you're loyal and the next day would be hey I love your shoulders and your ears and your chest and I love that you always check in on your friends and say I love you so it was always three things that were physical and one thing that was not because a lot of it was inherently tied to my physical appearance. So I spent so much time retraining my brain to remember that these things are beautiful. And then also saying like, but also outside of your um, physical beauty, there are beautiful things about you as a person. And so that's how I did that. And then with choosing joy, it was like after I got to the place where I didn't have to do the four things every single day, it was really just about me telling my brain, you're also still allowed to be happy. And you don't have to beat yourself up for things when they're not going right. Or you don't have to be upset if you didn't get every single thing done on your to-do list. Or you don't have to always be on. And that was really just me sort of reminding my brain that like it's okay to be human and to need that rest. And to need that break, not only physically, but mentally as well. Because I'm a very prolific person. And so for me, it's important to constantly be working. And it's great because I do get a lot done, but it's also like, I don't know when to stop sometimes. Mm, And so (laughs) it's really just me saying, you know, maybe choosing joy today is watching some rom-coms and you did five things on your to-do list, like do the other ones tomorrow or just, it's okay not to work on the weekends is one that I'm still, you know, working through. But yeah, just the idea that I can choose happiness and joy and hope 
in the face of, you know, the world that doesn't often offer them to me off bat. Okay, I told you that we're going to finish on the word joy, but I lied because there are two other words that I want to mention before we finish. One, because you mentioned it, is hope. So maybe we can end on that. But the other one is effort. You talk about effort here. And I feel like we've got more in common than just being writers in terms of I'm always working every weekend. I don't know. I really related to this thing you said about effort, this whole idea of you have to make the effort to get where you get, right? I feel like often we look at social media and it seems like people just sprang out of nothing and they'd achieved everything. And it's Mm -hmm. like, no, it's slog, isn't it? (laughs) Talk to me about what what does effort mean to you? And then perhaps hope. (laughs) Yeah, so I'll start with effort. Um, Effort to me saved my life in many ways is like the, the act of trying and failing and it being hard and, and still, you know, pushing forward. Effort is why I am where I am today. I think that some people think, oh, her hashtag went viral, so she got a book deal. And it's like, oh, no, oh, no, sweet summer child. That's not at all what happened. I was a writer before the hashtag, a writer during the hashtag, and a writer after it. Um, and I think that, like, what people don't see is that it was just mountains of rejections and, like, constantly being like, am I even doing this? Like, what's the point? And, like, oh, my God, and my agent, specifically for the book, he was like, it's going to sell. It's okay. Like, I'm like, all these people rejected it, and, like, you don't understand. Like, people are counting on me to do this thing. And, and really, it was wild because while I was writing it, I was so – concerned with the fact that I couldn't also put out a weekly essay to keep people interested (laughs) like I was constantly like I'm writing this book but also I don't I don't have the time to write essays and the thing that was wild to me particularly was that I still did it like I still I was writing the book and still trying to turn out freelance pieces so that I felt like my audience wasn't going to like be like oh she's not being productive like we're done listening to her on top of writing the book would not recommend that it was too much work I spent too much time stressed out but for me really effort every single day and saying to myself even when I don't want to today we're going to do these things that we don't want to do because we know it's going to make us feel better in the long run and so effort really saved my life in so many ways and it's not easy work to love yourself it's not easy work to get out of bed in the morning but I promise you that there will be a part of you that feels better. And if we can balance that effort with taking with rest. the rest that we all need in the, not just physically, but mentally, I think that that's the key, isn't it? It's like, it is difficult, isn't it? To navigate through that and find that balance. Yeah, absolutely. And for me, like, especially mentally, what I took to before the Rona was doing little staycations at a hotel that's in my city. I live in Buffalo, New York. I live near Buffalo, New York, Lockport. I took vacations at the hotel. Like I would, you know, book a hotel room for three days in a bed that's bigger than my regular one. And I would just relax, no work. Um, or sometimes I would do work, but I didn't feel so beholden to the same sort of clock that happens in the yeah. regular, you know, in the regular 24 hour day. So yeah, I think that it's very imperative that we take rest, both physically and mentally, and also that we give ourselves the effort that I know that we deserve. Mm -hmm. You know, you deserve the effort it takes to find something about your day that you took joy in and the effort to do the thing you always thought you could do, but you just didn't think it was possible. Like for me, that's starting taking acting classes. Like I took my- Who are you? Yeah. So I just started taking acting classes because I figured, why not? It's something I always wanted to do. And life is too short to stop yourself from trying to achieve a dream just because someone tells you that there's nothing there for you. I'll write the roles I want to create and go from there. Just keep working at it every single day. So good. See what happens. So good. Kia, I don't want you to have to burp because you had to talk to me for 150 hours. (laughs) So we're going to end. And I want you to end on that beautiful word, hope, which I have heard is your favorite word. Where do you find hope? And what are you hopeful about at the moment? Ooh, yes. Hope is absolutely my favorite word in the world. I love it. Obsessed. Um, Right now, I find hope in, you know, my friends. I find a lot of hope in my friends in terms of just being able to, like, 
lean on them and know that I have people there who are literally going to hold me up when I need it or, you know, be the shoulder virtually now since we can't see each other to cry Mm -hmm. on or like whenever I need to pick me up. Um, I'm really hopeful about social media, which I know is wild because it can be a cesspool, but the way that I've been sort of lifted up and championed on Twitter and Instagram is a dream come true and a gift. And I'm very grateful and I'm hopeful really just about the world of entertainment because I'm bursting into it and, and I'm, you know, I wrote my first movie and, you know, hopefully one day. You've written it? Yes, I've written it around yes. time. So just hopeful about the areas of the world that I want to be a part of. And I'm literally doing my best to make sure that people like me are seen. And I'm also hopeful because I'm really thinking that people in this current time are finding new and creative ways to get what they want out there. And there isn't so many ways that people can shut doors because if they shut doors on you traditionally, you can go online and do it that way. And I'm just really hopeful for a future where the things that we love, like film and TV and fashion in particular, will grow and change and be better because I think the world can be better. If we start listening to the people in it, I'm very hopeful that, you know, we live in a world that will allow change and growth and beauty within it. We just have to fight for those things and stop feeling like we, it's just impossible. Like, it's really about betting on ourselves. And um, my birthday is Saturday. So I decided that my 29th year is me betting on myself and me saying yes to myself. And I think that we are so close to living in a world that says yes to itself and says no to racism, sexism, homophobia, ableism, what have you, and yes to a world where everybody is included and everybody matters. Now it's getting hard. My parents feel that this is a waste of time. I don't know because everything is just fine. Thank you for listening to Wardrobe Crisis. To learn more about our guests and the issues that we've spoken about today, hop on over to my website, which is clairepress.com forward slash podcast. You can get in touch there and I really hope you will. I'd love to hear from you. And you can also find links to my social media. And finally, if you're enjoying the show, please head over to iTunes and subscribe. You know what they say, first in, best dressed. Subscribers are first to find out when there's a new episode and it also helps other people discover wardrobe crisis, so I'd love your help with that because the more people who switch on to ethical fashion, the better. Music is by Montaigne. She recorded this special acoustic version of Because I Love You, which is from her Glorious Heights album, especially for wardrobe crisis. How good is that? Thank you, Montaigne. Because I love you Because I love you